This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. From her album, Gone Again, Patti Smith there, Summer Cannibals. It's five after four. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Thanks heaps to Matt for burning vinyls. Here till five o'clock, followed by Jacob with a Friday rave. Alrighty, well, the Senate committee report into whether or not religious schools should be able to discriminate against queer students and teachers has been released. On the line, we have LGBTIQ policy advocate and activist, Alistair Laurie, welcome, Alistair, again to 3CR. Great to have you on board. Thanks very much for having me. Alistair, talk us through the main uh, recommendations from the committee's majority that were in the report. Sure. I guess when we're talking about this report, it's really three reports. In it one. is. Absolutely. Uh, but we'll start with the majority report of government senators, and they made two main recommendations. The first was that they would not support Labor's bill to remove discrimination against LGBT students. And the second was that they would refer the entire issue to the Australian Law Reform Commission for another review. Now, just to put that into context, we've already had the Ruddock Religious Freedom Review uh, at the start of last year. We've already had a first Senate inquiry into the issue of discrimination by religious schools in November last year. Now we've had this Senate inquiry into the same issue early this year. And government senators want to put it off to yet another review, which is incredibly disappointing and just not good enough. We don't need another review. We just need a parliament to act and to protect LGBT students against discrimination. Shades of marriage equality here where the government was constantly, you know, putting it off to a, another step, if you like, that was a delay tactic. And that seems to be what's going on here. I'd have to agree with that. It's, a, it's another unnecessary hurdle. The real concern here is that we're not talking about difficult reforms. These are things that have been done by Tasmania more than 20 years ago by the ATT most recently. We know how to do it. It's not a difficult or complex issue. Um, we just have a parliament and at this stage a government that has refused to do so. Obviously the election is going to be called soon. Is the real kind of practical purpose of this report basically setting up a, a policy battle on, on this issue and, and clearly you know, showing a demarcation between the government's view and the view of Labor and the Greens? Is this uh, being set up for an election campaign you know, debate on the issue, if you like? I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily for that purpose. I think it's just a trying to kick the can as far down the road as they possibly can. And if it goes to the Australian Law Reform Commission, that could be a long time after the next election. So what did Labor have to say? What was what was the main thrust of their dissenting report within the report? So I guess the, the main points of Labor, obviously they supported their own bill to remove discrimination against LGBT students. They, importantly, they opposed the government's amendments to the bill, each of which would have undermined that purpose and allowed discrimination against LGBT students to continue. But it also meant that the ALP uh, opposed the Greens amendment to include LGBT, teach- LGBT teachers at this stage. Why do you think teachers are, are such a difficult issue to deal with for, for Labor and, uh, and for the Coalition? Even more difficult than students, it seems. It, it, it's hard to say. I think advocates for the ALP say that there was, at least late last year, parliamentary agreement to remove discrimination against LGBT students, and so they were trying to focus on the issue of just students at this time. I think that the issue of students is it's a much more visibly vulnerable group, and so there's more, perhaps, sympathy for that issue. 
but it's, it's definitely something that we need to keep pushing Labor to clarify. So even in the dissenting report, they restate their position that they do want to remove discrimination against LGBT students, but it's unclear whether they would also then introduce some, some new words which allow religious schools to impose ethos and values conditions on teachers, and that's not something that we would support either. So in lots of ways, really, the focus is on the ALP, isn't it? Because it's unlikely the government's going to be able to do anything on this issue until until the election. Presumably Labor will win the election, and then they'll be in control of seeing the agenda. So really, it's their policy positions on this issue that are pretty crucial, aren't they, in terms of the the you know the, the medium-term future? unlikely to pass before the election no. any event because there's just not enough sitting days. So we have net from now until May 11 or May 18, depending on which dates the election, to put pressure on, on all the parties to deliver. So for those people who are in coalition seats or um, even to talk to their coalition candidates to say, referring this to the AL, ALRC for another review is just not good enough. You need to be taking action now. And for those people who are in Labor seats or have Labor candidates to talk to them, and make sure we make it clear that they should be removing discrimination against LGBT teachers as well and not to do that in a way that allows further discrimination. So how should LGBTIQ stakeholders such as community organisations and individuals actually be playing this issue? Should we be you know, demanding that Bill Shorten take action and legislate on this particular issue to our satisfaction within his first 100 days of government, for example? Is that the approach to be doing, to be going in hard and saying, legislate and do it quickly, just fix this? There's no reason why they can't. As I said earlier, there's clear models that already exist in some of the states and territories that have done this, that have done this well, and that have shown that it, it works. So there's no need to delay it. And there are real costs to delaying it as well. So every day that this isn't passed is a day that a student will turn up to school knowing that their school can discriminate against them. Every day that it's not passed is another day that a teacher has to turn up to work and wonder whether the school will discover who they are and perhaps terminate them. And nobody should go to school in that condition and nobody should go to work in that condition. So irrespective of who's in government, we should be pushing them to pass this as quickly as possible. In terms of benefits for the LGBTIQ community, which dissenting report do you think has the most teeth? Is is better for the community, the Labor parties or the Greens? Obviously, the Greens' dissenting report goes a bit further. So in their recommendations, they support the Labor bill uh, to remove discrimination against students. Importantly, they oppose the, the government amendments, the same as the Labor Party has. They support their own amendment to make sure that protection for LGBT teachers is added to the Sex Discrimination Act. But they've also then called for an urgent review of the Fair Work Act because it also contains provisions which allow religious schools to discriminate against uh, LGBT teachers and staff. And so, ideally, you would like to see the Sex Discrimination Act and Fair Work Act amended at the same time to get rid of both sets of uh, special privileges. What are LGBTIQ community organisations saying to you about how they're going to play this issue politically? Can you give us any kind of you know, insights into what people are saying to you? Because obviously you're a pretty well-known policy advocate and I imagine people are talking to you about this issue quite a lot. Uh, look, I'm probably not going to get into the political campaigning. I'm much more of a, a policy advocate. Um, but I don't think it'll be a surprise to see... Uh, state and territory lobby groups and other advocates out there calling for this legislation to be passed quickly and for it to be one of the first priorities of any new parliament. Uh, Our kids deserve nothing less than to be able to go to school 
uh, in a safe and nurturing environment. And that is a very, very reasonable demand to be making of anyone who wants our vote. What um, what do you think the Labor Party is actually going to do on this issue once it actually does form government? Do you think that they will suddenly have a bit of a policy turnaround? Do you think that we will see conflict between them and the Greens on this issue? Like, like what, what what's your crystal ball telling you? I think that the, the Labor Party has been very clear since October that they will deliver on protecting LGBT students. They've been clear in both last year's Senate report and this year's Senate report. So I would expect them to deliver on that and and as the Greens made sure in their dissenting report that they would support that. What happens with teachers is is still up for debate and so that's why we need to continue putting pressure on them to make sure that they do the right thing and that they adopt the Tasmanian and ACT model where you simply remove the, the exceptions and you don't allow new or other forms of discrimination. Whether they do that or not, Alistair Lowry, always great to get your insights. No doubt this issue is going to continue to be a political football. It'll be interesting to see if it does come up during the election campaign. And thanks heaps for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks very much. Everything I got. Lisa Stansfield, everything I've got, 20 after 4. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined in the studio by uh, Clary Agar and Trey Turner. They're part of the Let's Take Over Festival, which is going to be taking over Northcote Town Hall tomorrow week. Welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Tell us about yourselves and your art. We'll start with you, Clary. Well, I am a kind of visual artist, for lack of better words. So I, you know, mostly based in photography and paint and sculpture and anything that can kind of, if it can be put together, I'm going to try it and it's going to be ridiculous. Yeah. How about you, Trey? Um, I'm a drag artist. Fantastic. Now we're going to get to what you're doing yeah. because you're the uh, extravaganza at the end of the festival, aren't so you? So they say, so they say. You've got to tell us about that. I shall. Go now, for it. Now. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, when you want to. Well, the ending of the free event next week on March the 2nd at Northgate Town Hall, the ending is my Indigenous drag show that I've been putting together with. I've got three other Indigenous drag artists that will be helping me out doing an extremely exciting, fun, fierce, diva show at 8 o'clock. So tell us who these other artists are. So I have uh, An Addiction. Um, oh, I also, that's, a, that's a name. Anna Addiction is the, <sighs> yeah. They are Jaja Warang. I have Oyuna, who is a, a Indigenous Taino artist from Turtle Island. And then I also have Coco. Wow. Yeah. So who's Coco? Coco is um, a Wurundjeri artist, a, Wur- a Wurundjeri queen. So tell yeah. us, tell us how Indigenous culture is going to be evident in your in your performance. I imagine you've got a few little tricks up your sleeve. Well, I, I guess the basis of it is that we're all Indigenous and we all do drag. So inherently, whatever drag we do is going to be Indigenous. Um, there's not anything. Uh, like, I guess people will assume that we're going to have maybe some clay, like, on our faces or we'll have, I don't know, stereotypical things that makes our drag Indigenous, but inherently whatever we do is Indigenous. So it's just going to be our interpretation of drag, and I guess we'll have to come and find out. Clary, I'm almost thinking you should be designing their set. Uh, we did actually talk about that where we were talking about set for a while, but um, I've got enough problems with my own set currently. Mm. The last thing I need to do is two sets. Do tell. 
Okay, well, I am building a lot of hands currently. Really? Yes, and it's all made out of expanding foam and rubber gloves. And I can tell you my backyard is a disaster right now. It is covered in expanding foam, these like gloves coming from trees. They're filling up my laundry sink. And I have to get all this furniture and amongst other things. I've been like audio mixing as well. It's crazy right now. So what will you be creating? Um, it's a interactive audio narrative driven piece kind of in a space where you, you, you're given a story or you're being read a story by a character and you walk through a very like surreal landscape. So I'm making a lot of hands and they're going to be coming from the ceiling and you pretty much enter someone's house and you're able to go through their stuff while you learn about this person. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what, what inspired that? Um, I really like really interactive forms of storytelling um, and object storytelling and anything that can be brought together with different sensory inputs. So I've been very based on smell and on touch and sight and sound. And I just think it's this is an opportunity where I've got um, actual funding to make it happen because I've been experimenting with this for quite a few years now. So how did you both end up in this festival? Let's start with you, Trey. Like, you know, how did, how did you get there? How did you get to be performing um, this drag act Saturday week? Uh, so I was volunteering for a fringe show and then the uh, producer there was like, you should apply for this. And they sent me that application Then I applied, got an interview and then here we are. Wow. How about you, Clara? I tried to put on an art show uh, about a year ago at my mother's house without letting her know. And got caught out and was in a ridiculous amount of trouble from her. Um, And so actually she sent me a link to it being like, go do it there. Um, don't do it in my house. So, so how, how did this? How did this? I'm fascinated by this. How did this surprise? Was it a surprise show, or was it? Uh, oh, she's gone away for the weekend. She I, came home early and caught you. Like what no, happened? No, I there? told her I had 30 people coming. I had about 150 coming. I had about 20 artists lined up, and. Um, I added my brother to the event and he freaked out and told my mom. Um, so it all fell through at the last minute. And it's such a shame because she's got like an incredible like venue. And yeah, but wow. one day we're going to make it happen. <laughs> so Trey, I've got to ask you, what numbers will you be performing? What numbers? Yeah. Uh, so there'll be, I won't give the exact tracks because, you know, you have to come and actually see them. Um, but I'll be doing, you know. You think if you tell people they won't come because it'll give it away too much? Uh not necessarily, but you know, I'll be there'll be a bit of Khalees, there'll be a bit of Beyonce, there'll be a bit of uh, Opal, Coco Miyaki. If you've heard of that, you should put that song on because it's a banger. Um, and then there'll be some non lip sync songs from some artists. Wow, yeah, wow. So, do you sing as well? I just don't sing, that's, <laughs> that's why I'm a drag artist because I don't have to sing doing that. So, when are you two going to collaborate? Because I mean, you've obviously been talking about working together. Um, I guess we're collaborating now. This whole yeah. this you whole are. process is a collaborative team. Every we're all leading our own in, like our projects, but it's a team um, exercise. We all come together and be like, "Yeah, we like this. We don't like this. Or how about this? How about that?" It's not. Um, yeah, we're collaborating now. So tell us about some of the other artists uh, who will be there, apart from your your colleagues. Like, um, who else is who else is going to be doing stuff? 
Um, like within who we're working with, like no, no, people, within or? the actual one day festival. Oh, who's going to be coming? No, no, no. Who are some of the other like you know young people who oh, are going to be okay. coming out? Uh, on? Well, I've got a little page here, which is yeah. really helpful. Um, so we've got a lot of like performance based artists. So we've got um, uh, Aiden, who's um, like from regional Victoria and is incredible because he's fifteen and is like managing. Bands and yeah, has he's his a scout record. and it's labeling people and yeah, yeah, labeling people. Oh, it's, on a label, on a label, a record label. Oh, wow, yeah. it's incredible. He's fifteen. Yeah. I had an interview wow. with him, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this kid is ridiculous." Oh, I, it's like a savant yeah. or something. Yeah, it was amazing. And then we've also got Zadie, who's this um, absolute firecracker. She's seventeen, is like a beautiful writer, and is so like driven. Um, and I. Yeah, she's fantastic. She'll be presenting a roaming theatrical dancing piece that will be running through the halls that you'll have to spot at some point. Mm. Wow. Mm. Who else? Who else? We have uh, Andy, who is a hip-hop dancer, and he'll be doing a hip-hop workshop um, that people should come along to. Yeah, it's going to be great. Awesome stuff. So where can people rock along to? Like, Give us the details. Um, well, again, I'll be at Northcote Town Hall on High Street. Uh, it starts at five, I believe. Five, at five o'clock, there'll yeah. be a smoking ceremony and a welcome to country. Yeah. And then the doors will open and people can come and go as they want because it's also free. Wow, and that's good. So no you, tickets, no No tickets, no registration, no. just rock up just whenever rock up. you so desire. Yeah. Just maybe not at midnight because oh, we'll yeah. all be bumping out and yeah. like, <laughs> if you want to help us bump out... That's fine, yeah. That's a real party. classic album from 1980 that was The Cure. Uh, play for today and the album was 17 seconds. It's 4.37. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined in the studio by two very special guests, uh, Babook Sayed and Mo Mersel from Queer Space, and they're here to talk to us about their individual mentoring program. Welcome to 3CR, guys. Thank Thanks for having us, James. It's a great pleasure. Um, what is individual mentoring? Well, the premise for individual mentoring um, came out of a series of um, strategies that the federal government and the public health network kind of devised um, in response to kind of the epidemic of LGBTIQA youth suicide that it identified was kind of um, those rates were significantly higher for um, LGBT youth. Um, And in addition, like, you know, self-harm, poor mental health, um, and, you know, experiences of isolation and alienation from, you know, mainstream society. And so um, as part of those strategies, there were four kind of um, interventions and initiatives. Uh, The first was kind of aftercare for um, communities and people who had immediately, you know, had lost um, a member to suicide. Uh, Another was training and educating kind of different... um, organizations and stakeholders in kind of like how to better serve LGBTI youth that they're working with. And the two that Mo and myself kind of work with um, at Queer Space are um, the individual mentoring program and the family mentoring program. So yeah, the individual mentoring program basically looks at 
um, pairing younger um, and emerging or people or, or queers who have uh, experiencing a, a period of um, you know um, vulnerability or difficulty with their mental health with um, an older um, member of the LGBT community who can kind of like help them with uh, referrals to other places to with community integration and just like providing a role model as someone who has been through it um, and has wisdom and knowledge through that process. So Mo, would you say it's very much about steering a young person down the path that suits them in terms of uh, service provision to deal with these what sound like incredibly complex issues? Absolutely. I think one of the real strengths of this program will be around trying to link up young people or people at key sort of transition points in their life with supports that really meet their needs. So that could be a real diverse range of supports, whether it be creative supports, sports, um, other interests. It's about meeting them where they're at and supporting them in a really holistic kind of way. So tell us about your actual role in the project. Like, what will you be doing specifically with these young people? Well, Bobak and I will both be um, coordinating this program. So that's around coming up, I guess, with the model of how we're going to train mentors, how we're going to get them on board, and what kind of stuff are we looking for when we're talking about getting mentors and mentees on board? What skills, what interests, what kind of capacities are we after? And then also looking for and finding mentor, mentees in the community, like young people who need a bit of support. So our role will be to link them up, support them throughout that process, make sure that feels really good and safe for everyone involved, and generally supporting the process throughout the year that we've got for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And it's like I think um, mentorship um, for young people doesn't like really sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> it's not like the most exciting sounding proposition so like trying to design a program that can be like mutually beneficial where like um older queers uh can feel like um really legitimate and like nourished for like giving back to their community and supporting younger queers in similar challenges and also younger queers can feel like they're getting something really um, productive out of it whether that's a skill as mo said or even just like um, integration into communities spaces mm. that can feel really alienating especially if you are newly queer or if you've just moved to Melbourne or if you've kind of like you're in a period of like you know friendship turnarounds like um, those kind of transition points are really important and can feel really isolating. So I imagine gender diversity issues are going to be a big focus of your work working with young people from gender diverse backgrounds and non-binary backgrounds? Yeah absolutely I think um those, those are like definitely target communities um, who experience really significantly higher rates of isolation, and, and and that isolation as well. It's important to like emphasize that that isolation comes from discrimination and experiences of transphobia. It's not like you know the young people are isolating themselves. It's like society has like pushed them out and marginalized them. Um, as in addition to kind of like people of color communities, First Nations people, um, disabled people, and trying to like target who are um, those young people who are kind of the most vulnerable people in our communities and who really don't have any role models. Um, yeah. So you're really tackling social exclusion, which is not like, you know, oh, you've got no friends. It's all about, you know, okay, this, this spiral of disadvantage that, 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 that means that people become further isolated. So, you know, one thing just leads to the other in the domino effect and you're unpacking all of that. Absolutely. So, well, tell us about your backgrounds. How did you end up in these amazing roles? Um, go with you first, Bo. <laughs> oh, I thought you said Bo. Um, yeah, so I've come through this um, working more predominantly with youth in a range of spaces from 
uh, youth homelessness and violence prevention and things like that. I also identify as queer and non-binary. So I think that I bring a whole range of those experiences to that and to this role. Um, that's me. Yeah. yeah. I came from a, kind of from a more left field um, approach where I have started working with a couple of years ago, um, like LGBT refugees and asylum seekers, um, as well as like um, queer and trans people of color and like building community on like a more DIY sense. Um, looking at like kind of mental health outcomes and uh, this idea that like these communi- communities who are intersectional and have like diverse needs are often kind of pigeonholed or um, swept with like a really broad brush coming from the mainstream that isn't sensitive to their needs and also doesn't like kind of recognize the like um, the kind of specific needs that are, that that people experience like after settlement after youth after like an experience where their visa or citizenship has been confirmed like and a lot of the services kind of focus on those kind of more uh you know immigration or specific pragmatic um kind of challenges but don't really invest in the longevity of a person's life beyond them so you're really dealing with complex intersections in people's lives you know that perhaps uh certainly don't get a guernsey in the mainstream service provision area Absolutely, yeah. So um, that's pretty challenging. How do you work with someone when when they are a part of a community but don't really feel like it and service providers don't really meet their needs? Like, how do you actually create a space for them that's safe? What kind of skills do you use? What kind of techniques do you use to do that? Well, I mean, like what we, I feel like what we identify in our work, um, and Mo and I have like seen this a lot, is like a lot of people um, from you know, marginalized communities have a really strong sense of distrust and like betrayal from mainstream support services. And those are coming from having heard from other community members or having experienced at first hand, like really harmful encounters with service provisions, therapists, youth workers, school kind of like um, wellness counselors or chaplains, you know, and like when you're coming from that kind of background and you have those experiences, of course, you're not going to have you know, feel motivated to reach out and access a service when that is your experience. And so basically, like, you know, so much of our work is involved in, like, rebuilding trust and building coalitions and networks to look at, like, where young people are accessing and being a first-line kind of face that can show that people who work for services can look like us, can have our experiences, um, and also it's not some kind of, like you know, priest who's trying to convert you that, like, we're on the same side and we're working together for your mental health and that can be something that, you know, is collaborative. Yeah, because if a service provider gets it wrong, they're not actually helping someone's mental health, they're making it worse. So it Mm -hmm. sounds like you've encountered both of you, a lot of young people who have been in that situation where they've gone into a program that, you know, perhaps one size fits all and it doesn't fit them and it just um, leads to further mental health issues and a downward spiral. Would you say that's the case with um with with your cohort at times? I think that that can certainly be a case and a really common experience for young people is accessing services or talking to someone and it just doesn't feel right, like people don't get it. Um, I think the process of coming out or sort of starting to um, understand your own identity and sense of self is a really personal and a big space um, and if you're not getting the right kind of support then that's pretty devastating mm. um, so I think that one thing that we're trying to definitely draw on is the collective wisdom of our community we've got a pretty amazing community that's full of so many voices uh, let's use that let's use that space and of course your your emphasis on on people who are non-binary is incredibly helpful because so often that's a community that has been ignored 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree in, in many ways, but I think it's really important that we, we look at a whole range of communities in this space, uh, for sure. Mm. I think there's like there are definitely these misunderstandings with service provision, like, and that's even if pe- young people or queer people know that there are these service providers like Drum Street and Queer Space um, or Thorn Harbour. Like, if they even even if they know that, like, some of the misunderstandings are that like service exists only as like kind of one-on-one therapy there's like a real um misunderstanding about how like many approaches and strategies there are that service providers utilize and deliver for building mental health and resilience in communities and especially in queer communities and and you know this program it's not it's like it falls somewhere between um you know a youth focused event um which is very informal and happens at a group capacity um and interpersonal therapy which is kind of like one-on-one so we're looking at kind of like devising and designing a kind of program that can kind of fill that gap in between when a person might need like uh, a one-on-one therapy session and when they might feel comfortable coming to a youth event so you're both very much in the program design phase Mm -hmm, definitely wow when did you start well, it's actually, it's, it's been, this has been the product of an LGBT youth suicide prevention task force. It's been underway for a couple of years now that I've been part of. And, you know, it's been, there's been so much work done into like co-designing and trying to implement it sensitively and like kind of chatting with all these partner groups. And now we're finally in the phase of implementing it at a community level where we have, you know, Mo and myself co-coordinating this program and slowly starting to like pull together mentors and mentees and design the training package um, and so that's kind of what we have now, an expressions of interest form that people can maybe like find on the website. Fantastic. Now, you've also got a, uh, a family mentoring program as well uh, mm-hmm. at Queer Space. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that one's kind of coming from the same background and the same theory, but rather than focusing on that young person, it's thinking about sometimes families of young LGBTIQ people don't necessarily get what's going on have some questions that can be pretty tricky for that young person to answer and can be doing stuff that doesn't always feel good. So the idea of this program is to provide support, so another mentoring program, family to family, and I guess that term's pretty broad. So by family, we also mean caregivers and loved ones of those uh, young people, but around providing support to them so they know, I guess, a place they can ask questions, they can get ideas on how to best support their loved one. It must be hard to bring relatives to the table sometimes, though, because there's a lot of stigma and um, isolation that that parents have to deal with in relation to their kids and family members have to deal with as well. Um, Do you find that that it's hard to get family involved in these things or, or, or do you find that that's not the case? You know, it's definitely a challenge, especially like at the very first instance, like when when there's been a coming out or some kind of disclosure, like, you know, families can be really withdrawn and really reluctant to even like engage in having those conversations, let alone like doing the hard work of like make going on an, an, a very long acceptance journey. And like basically, you know, th- this kind of program will only like be able to tap into families at a certain point of that acceptance journey. You know, it won't necessarily be the ones that are you know, right, right at the outset. But it's basically looking at, like, pairing families at an earlier point of the acceptance journey with families that are towards the end of an acceptance journey. And acknowledging that that journey is, like, a... Mm. is an endless spectrum, that families of queer people will always have room to go, grow and can't always fully comprehend and support your queer people when they don't have that lived experience. 
So if someone's listening to this interview and they're thinking, gee, I'd love to... I'm a young person, I'm a young queer person, I want to get involved in this, and they email you or or ring you, call mm-hmm. you, what can they expect? Like, talk us through that process when people make contact, what happens? Yeah, I think it's um, basically, you know, we are two coordinators and, and we are humans, honestly, at the end of the line. So... We, we're working with where the young person is at. If they're ready to, like, kind of have a chat with us and maybe talk about their expectations and what kind of skills they would like to grow within a mentorship dynamic, then we can engage at that level. If at the moment they're only really ready for a phone call and to just register their interest and they want to hear more information online through email, then that can work too. There's also the opportunity for, like, people who might have young people or families to refer into the program um, to kind of, like... Um, communicate that to us as well because you know the families of queer people won't necessarily be listening to in your face you know won't necessarily be tapped into all the queer support services and so I think that's part of the responsibility that we hold in the queer community is kind of finding and identifying when there's need within and outside of the community and and using our kind of resources to refer on and what about face-to-face appointments? Like if someone rings you up, um, do you find that sometimes it's just best for them to come in and have a chat with you face-to-face? Because over the phone or, you know, online can be a bit daunting. I mean, for young people today, I feel like um, in-person it can actually be, can be more daunting, I feel. Really? Um, or let alone a phone call. You know, like a phone call is a really high stress for a lot of young people. <laughs> so you find that you're not actually meeting many young people face-to-face? Oh, we definitely are. Um, that's definitely a part of the process as well. But, you know, what I want to emphasize is that, like, you can text us, you can email us. Like, there are lots of different ways that you can reach out um, and, and ask for help. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.